Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my compatriot Dan Larison attempt each week to take the foreign policy and national security headlines of the day and try to strip away how they are being framed by the mainstream media and the establishment and look at these issues the way they really are, but more importantly, how regular Americans might interpret them. The ugly truth is that a lot of policies are being dreamed up and made real with a lot of our taxpayer dollars in the Beltway and with very little, if any, input from folks outside the Beltway. That is even more acute with the Ukraine war, for which American taxpayers have devoted more than $113 billion in the last year alone. In the second half of our show, we have Lyle Goldstein to talk about the one-year mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and where all that money has been going. But first, let's talk about a brewing hotspot in the Middle East, what Israel would like to see as another front in the ongoing U.S.-backed conflicts overseas, and that's Iran. This week, U.N. inspectors are allegedly concerned that Iran is enriching uranium at least at at least one of its nuclear sites to 84% purity, which would put it within striking distance of having the weapons-grade material to build a bomb. This has Israeli officials out of the gate with comments like, quote, it is now or never, as Israel's national security advisor, Sachi Hanegbi, said Monday in an interview conducted by the Jerusalem Post, Quote, we are trying to convince everyone that in order to prevent a confrontation with Iran, you need to have a credible military threat either by Israel, the U.S., or the global community, end quote. The Israelis want a U.S. war so bad with Iran they can taste it. Israel's defense minister, Yav Gallant, said on February 17th that, quote, all possible means, end quote, were on the table to prevent Iran from building a nuclear weapon. Iran is flatly denying the IAEA allegations that it has enriched uranium to 84%. And as far as we know now, there is no official report that the IAEA has said so. IAEA officials have only said that they are talking to Iranian officials about their recent inspections. Iran started enrichment beyond levels of 4% after Trump ripped up the JCPOA in 2018, effectively shattering American pledges to lift sanctions on Iran in exchange for its keeping to enrichment caps and keeping its sites open to inspections. The country acknowledged enriching to 60% back in 2021. Meanwhile, efforts to restart the JCPOA have come to a standstill with folks already talking as though it's dead. Meanwhile, since the breakdown of the nuclear talks, U.S. officials have repeatedly said that President Joe Biden will not tolerate a nuclear Iran. Dan, I'm not sure these reports are fully true, but I know what is real is that Israel's desire to go after Iran militarily is quite true. The timing is absolutely incredible considering that the U.S. is completely distracted by too much bigger global problems, and that is the war in Ukraine and ongoing tensions with China. So what do you make of all of this? So uh, thanks, Kelly. Uh, so the the thing that I'm actually most concerned about is the, the remarks that came from our ambassador to Israel uh, just a couple of days ago, where he was not only repeating the boilerplate of we won't accept a nuclear weapon in Iran, but where he said Israel can and should do whatever they need to deal with that threat, uh, and we've got their back. Um, that That's a, a very dangerous thing for any uh, U.S. official to be saying, much less the, the ambassador to that country. 
uh, essentially giving them what has been widely interpreted as a green light to take military action if they see fit. Um, when that would have uh, massive repercussions for U.S. interests, for re regional stability, uh, that's not the kind of thing that you can simply hand off to another government and say, all the best, and, and we will support you all the way. Uh, that's that's really uh, the, the most concerning thing to come out of this last week. Uh, the, the reports about higher enrichment in Iran are, are first concerning, but it's not clear yet if this higher enrichment was an accident in the process of making 60% enriched uranium, or if it was um, a deliberate escalation on the part of the Iranian government. Of course, they're, they're going to deny it. Um, if they are moving towards weapons-grade uranium, because, of course, that, that would probably be a trigger for some kind of action, whether by the U.S. or by Israel. Whether it should be or not is a different question, but it, it probably would be, uh, given the the position that both governments have taken over the years about uh, how unacceptable uh, proliferation in Iran uh, is to them. Um, the, the disturbing thing, I think, overall is that given how plausible the, the possibility of a new war is, that there is not more urgency in Washington, either in uh, the White House or in Congress, to try to get diplomacy back on track. And you know, I understand that there was a lot of um, sort of performative condemnations of of Iran during the suppressions of the the recent protests, uh, and and I understand that people are genuinely offended by those uh, by the crackdown, but that should not be a reason to stupper negotiations to resolve the nuclear issue, which. Um, which is really the the it's the one issue that we are in any position to resolve with Iran, and so if we if we can't do that through diplomacy, then I don't see us making any progress on any other issue either. And so it's it's a shame that we're seeing that slip away, uh, and, and essentially in, in Washington, the conventional wisdom, as you said, is that the agreement is finished uh, in all but name, and so it's uh, it's a it's a very dangerous situation. Uh, the, the ambassador's comments definitely don't help, and the administration ought to disavow those statements. But I, I somehow I suspect they're not going to, because they they feel more concerned about reassuring Israel uh, than they are about uh, paving the path for a new war. But the the, the more that the U.S. reassures its clients in the Middle East. Uh, the, the worst things tend to get because then they believe that they have a blank check from us uh, and and a and free reign to do what they like, and they will come and pick up the pieces when things go wrong. And you know, as we've seen with the Saudis, uh, that can lead to really terrible outcomes, uh, not just for the, for the targeted country, but for the whole region. Yeah, and what bothers me is that there seems to be implicit in all this that the reason the JCPOA talks have been scuttled is because of the protests. Now, taking away um, the protests, and I, I'm not going to justify or excuse them or explain them away, but just take them out of the equation right now. You and I have been talking about the stalled JCPOA talks, I think, for as long as this show, Crashing the War okay. Party, has been in existence. And Biden came into office 
saying that he was going to restart the talks and eventually get back into a nuclear deal with Iran because it was his predecessor, Obama, President Obama, who had sealed that deal to begin with. And it was something that was on their radar and it was pretty much on top of their foreign policy priority list. So we followed that all the way through to its dismal decline ahead of the protests. So the protests seem like a convenient excuse to say why they can't go, these talks can't go forward. And I know our European friends have been trying hard to get them restarted. I think there was a piece uh, by, I, I can't remember where it was, but it was, had interviewed Joseph Burrell, who is the, the European envoy for the talk, saying he, he absolutely is not giving up. But I'm concerned that political considerations are to blame for the scuttling, ultimately, of this deal, just like political considerations are driving our escalatory talk about China over Taiwan. And so you have these two diplomatic paths that really would make for peaceful relations between U.S. and Iran in the Middle East and U.S. and China and in the Far East. And yet the political considerations for the Biden administration seem to be we need to look tough because they have hawks in the Democratic Party and certainly hawks in the Republican Party who won't stand for any of this, whether it be a deal with Iran over its nuclear program or uh, making nice with China over Taiwan. Well, and, and this gets to the, the problem that um, I think we've talked about before, which is that the, the U.S. is simply taking on too much. Uh, and as, as you were saying, we, you know, the U.S. already has a lot on its plate in sustaining Ukraine's war effort. Um, that, that is already a, a major undertaking in itself. Uh, obviously, any heightened rivalry with China would be enormously demanding on U.S. resources. Um, and, and doing both at the same time is probably more than we can manage. So you would think of, of all the things you would want to do, you'd want to keep the Middle East as calm and quiet as you possibly could. You, you would want to rein in your clients as much as you could. And you wouldn't have your ambassadors going around saying that they can do whatever they like and, and we'll back them all the way. And so you know, my hope, I, I guess I don't expect a public uh, repudiation of the ambassador or something uh, like that, but I, I would expect, I would hope that somebody from the White House would contact the ambassador and tell him, to stop talking like this and to stop egging them on. Uh, because as you were saying, the Israeli government is already quite primed and, and eager to try something if they think they have U.S. backing. And so the, the signals from Washington need to be in the, going in the opposite direction and telling them that if they try something like this, they, they're going to be on their own. Uh, and when we're not, we're not going to have their back because we shouldn't be launching an attack on Iran anyway. And, and just, and, and I know I, I keep harping on this when, whenever this comes up, but it's an important point to make. Whether Israel attacks Iran or we attack Iran with them or by ourselves, it would be illegal aggression against another country. There's no there's no self defense justification for any of this. It, it's all uh, it's all militarist nonsense that this has something to do with defending ourselves. It would be an unprovoked attack, and so that's. That's the, the key point that I think gets lost in a lot of this back and forth about will they or won't they or, or what level is the enrichment at. 
we have no right to do it. It's against international law. If we actually believe in any of the things we say we believe about those rules, we can't do it. And I and I think one indication was our reaction or lack of reaction to Israel being behind an attack on Iranian facilities, a drone attack just last month. It just disappeared into the ether, the news. Mm -hmm. And so when it's a country that we dislike, we wave it away. We dismiss the news. But we are literally giving um, Ukraine $113 billion now. It's an invasion. Russia invaded Ukraine. And I'm not equating both stories here, both issues. But the fact is we talk a real tough game about sovereignty and about international law and about aggression, unprovoked congression towards other countries. And we allow Israel to attack Iran numerous times over the last few years, whether it be assassinations or the kind of drone attacks that we saw last week, and we don't say anything. And so I feel like this is going to lead to nowhere good, and we might yet find ourselves in a three-front confrontation, global confrontation. love to welcome to the show today Lyle Goldstein. Lyle is Director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities and a visiting professor at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Formerly, he served as a research professor in the China Maritime Studies Institute, which he co-founded at the U.S. Naval War College. He has written or edited seven books on Chinese strategy, including Meeting China Halfway, How to Defuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry in 2015. Goldstein speaks Russian as well as Chinese and maintains expertise in both Chinese and Russian military, strategic development, and the China-Russia relationship. Thanks for coming on the show, Lyle. Yeah, glad to be back. It's it's such a terrific uh, show. I listen to every episode. Oh, thank you so much. And we're so happy to have you back, particularly now on the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine one year ago. Um, I know you had been watching and analyzing. You came on this show to talk about the Russian buildup over the border uh, before much long, much long before the actual invasion. What was the or one of the biggest surprises for you watching all of this unfold? over the last year. Right. Um, well, I think, you know, I, I do think strikes me looking back over, over the last few years here that, um, you know, I, I'm quite sad to have, you know, uh, predicted the war. Um, I, I put up every warning that I could, including on this show saying that Putin might well invade, um, that we were, uh, that the, the Russians were shouting red line at the top of their lungs and, and nobody seemed to be, um, or very few seemed to take it seriously. Um, uh, many dismissed it as a bluff or, or thought that, you know, it would never come to that. Um, I, I'm somebody who believes red lines need to be taken absolutely seriously. And I, I think the same is true in the Chinese case. And I, again, I, 
I think it's, it's, and this is continuing, by the way, we can talk about that on the, uh, in the case of Russia, but I mean, you know, uh, as a military analyst, uh, what surprised me most, I think, is uh, how how well the Ukrainian army has stood up in in extremely uh, difficult conditions, and I, you know, that that is uh, an amazing feat, uh, which uh, you know should should be rightly celebrated. Um, very dramatic courage. Uh, uh, you know, I. I so, so that is, um, a bit surprising and, um, you know, obviously that will impact. And, and, you know, I, in some ways, that's why I'm somebody who thinks that this war can be settled, um, relatively soon, because I do think in some ways Ukraine has won a great victory. Um, and, you know, Russia can claim, uh, you know, can claim some achievements, I guess, on, on their side. Fair enough. Uh, but, but Ukraine has achieved something very dramatic. Um, and preserve the Ukrainian state, which, which after all was in doubt. If you had asked me a year or two ago whether a war would occur and Ukraine would survive, I, I couldn't say for sure. Uh, so that is surprising. Why is that, Lyle? Because on one hand, I and heard plenty of that analysis before the war as well in terms of the Russian strength. Did we underestimate the the amount of training and supplies that? Ukraine was getting from the U.S. and NATO since 2014 and how that might play into their strength when the rubber hit the road, so to speak. Yeah, I think there were a number of factors. Um, that's one of them. I think you're right, Kelly, that, um, you know, a lot of this help for Ukraine's military was done rather quietly. Um, and I think it really took off after, uh, 2014, 2015. And, um, you know, I, I saw quite a bit of that just myself working at Naval War College, uh, uh, the kind of very stepped up engagements. Um, and that this was very disturbing to the Russians as I watched this, uh, unfold. But I think, you know, those, uh, that, that, those, you know, uh, what, uh, five, seven years of intensive, uh, engagement with the Ukrainian military did uh, give them some um, uh, more strength, uh, certainly. Um, but, you know, it's also, I think, uh, you know, uh, let's face the the, the outrageous uh, uh, act of aggression, you know, that, that is so, um, uh, um, you know, so, so egregious that many, I think, in Ukraine, uh, you know, reacted emotionally. You have to um, be um, very, uh, you know, highly motivated, um, you know, to, to go and stand in front of a tank. And they did. So, but I do think uh, as far as, you know, appraising the state of the field, you know, the, you know, I, I think some things were missed for sure. I mean, uh, I have that report I, I wrote last year that explained that the if you just look at the military, you know, Russia's military budget compared to that of NATO, it would suggest that Russia's conventional arms are much weaker than um, than we thought. Um, and if we had just studied those numbers carefully, but uh, if you will, you know, the Russians, um, let's say, uh, even Putin had been pretty good at pulling a rabbit out of a hat or even, you know, playing a, a weak hand uh, skillfully, like in Syria, where many of us thought Russia would just fall completely on its face. Actually, they managed to kind of um, stabilize the situation and promote their objectives, such as they were. But 
um, you know, had had inflicted significant defeat on the Ukrainian army in uh, spring 2015 at the Baltsevo. So, I mean, you know, that to, to me was a case study and seemed to suggest that Russia had vast uh, uh, military, conventional military superiority over over Ukraine that would prevail in the war. Um, so, but yeah, so, so there were kind of a string of Russian military successes um, that had kind of, I think, misled uh, the strategic studies community to think, and, and even misled the Russians themselves, indeed, uh, they, they far overestimated their uh, military prowess. So Anatoly even says that the war was lost for Russia within the first three weeks, mostly because it overshot with its war aims and, you know, had a series of uh, stumbles and, and bumbles uh, tactically as well as strategically. But yet now the war has settled into a battle or war of attrition in which Russia has the upper hand because it can supply a long war of attrition for much longer than Ukraine, whether it be with manpower or munitions. Where do we go from here? What do you think of that assessment? And do you believe that despite uh, Russia's failures at the beginning and in Ukraine's ability to, to stand and fight, that it, we're going into another level here in which Ukraine might not be in the best position uh, to defend itself for, for much longer? Yeah, um, well, a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think Anatole Levin is a superb analyst and he, he's got it completely right. Uh, and that, you know, Russia, um, uh, really, um, um, was far too ambitious in its initial plan, uh, and met uh, all kinds of resistance that it didn't expect at all. Um, you know, I think I even saw a Russian article saying, you know, we expected to be greeted with, with garlands of flowers in these, uh, Ukrainian towns, but, uh, instead they got, you know, uh, javelin missiles. So they, you know, yes, they, I think it's fair to say, um, that the war, uh, almost was entirely lost. Um, and, uh, Russia mm, turned around and, you know, reevaluated and said, wow, we've got to, uh, do this a completely different way. Um, and yes, they're fighting a kind of different kind of war now, uh, which is, you know, this grinding war of attrition. You know, I should say I've been one who's quite concerned that there would be some kind of massive offensive lunge during this uh, winter. Uh, now people are talking about spring offensive. You know, I think reasonably we're becoming more and more skeptical, but, but in some ways that may show the Russian hand as, as, much more cautious now. I mean, having been uh, badly burned in those uh, first few weeks that they are not willing to take um, the major risks that would require be required to, uh, you know, with these giant offensive thrusts. I mean, you know, even a month ago, people were talking at least a little bit seriously about a possible thrust back to Kiev through Belarus or something like that. Hopefully that is all um, uh, more or less off the table. I, I haven't heard the entire Putin speech, uh, but um, I have not, you know, I have not heard many hints of that. So, yes, we're in this grinding war of attrition. And I, again, agree with Levin that Russia has some distinct advantages here. 
You know, they say they're running the munitions factories, you know, more or less 24 seven. Um, and they have uh, mobilized at least sufficiently, you know, their networks and so forth to, um, you know, keep the supplies flowing. I know there's some skepticism about that, but if you think about the Ukraine trying to run a war off of supplies that are coming from overseas, um, it's uh, tremendously, if I, I have to imagine that Ukraine itself is starting to build up, um, uh, fabrication facilities to the extent they can, but of course the Russians will target those. So I'm, I'm very concerned about, um, about escalation. I mean, it's true. The front has more or less stabilized, but you know, I see far too many, uh, ways that this could still, uh, blow sky high. And, and, you know, I'm, I am happy that we are not in world war three and that the worst has been avoided, but I am at, by no means relaxed about this. Uh, you know, I, I'm ready. I have, compile the list of nuclear threats that I've been reading in the Russian uh, military press. And uh, it is extremely disturbing. You know, I can, I can give you the dates, but uh, over the last month, I count uh, what I would consider at least five uh, major articulations by senior figures, you know, former generals, uh, even uh, the deputy um, uh, foreign minister, uh, last Friday, uh, and th- and these are completely missed in the Western media, um, which is you know inexcusable in the nuclear era. Um, but we're we're at the nuclear precipice. President Biden himself said that we're closer to uh, Armageddon than we have been. Since, he said that in October, and there was very little attention to that. And uh, a few uh, Western strategists are kind of dismissive, say, well, this just serves, you know, Mr. Putin's end. So let's not talk about this. I, I think that's unforgivable. Um, we, we, we got one planet. We cannot afford to lose it. Well, definitely. Well, I, uh, I, I agree entirely. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show again. It's great to have you on. And uh, speaking of, of escalation risks, uh, one of the, the fears that uh, many of us have had is that if the Ukrainian government were to make a significant effort to try to take Crimea, uh, as, as they've stated they want to do, uh, this could be uh, one, one of the triggers for, for escalation on the Russian side. Um, do, you, do you anticipate that they will make a concerted effort in that direction uh, in the coming year? And has B- the Biden administration done enough to discourage that? Um, yeah, from what I'm seeing, uh, I do think, you know, major... Um, and again, I'm not, you know, in a, in a great position to evaluate how Ukraine is mobilizing its strength. I mean, you hear conflicting reports, but I mean, just taking it on its face, the, the idea that there'll be hundreds of uh, tanks and APCs flowing into Ukraine, that this has got to, uh, you know, with, with uh, people trained to operate them decently well, uh, this will certainly light up the eyes of Ukrainian generals and, and the, with the idea that they might um, achieve something dramatic. Now, you know, I mean, one has to say that they they have achieved far more than I thought they probably could. Uh, you know, I still raise some basic questions like how to how are armored thrusts supposed to operate effectively without you know air cover? Um, and then you know, I guess the the repraise is well, there will be air cover, but um, uh, you know, to me this inevitably leads down the road of escalation. And I think I, ra- I raised the point res- recently in Responsible Statecraft with an article where I made the point that, you know, unfortunately, tank parks and, uh, you know, places where tanks are stored and repaired, as well as airfields, uh, make, um, I hate to say it, but they do make suitable um, 
and even inviting targets for tactical nuclear strikes. And, you know, I have uh, retired Russian General Yuri Nyetkachev uh, said in uh, on February 14th, he said that in the Russian press, Nizvisima uh, Gazeta, he commented that these would be, ex- you know, that these kind of rear areas would make outstanding targets and he would, you know, that the Russian weapons would destroy these base areas with 100% certainty. So, I mean, you know, that if that's uh, what passes for, um, you know, if that's the discourse in Russia right now among the uh, former generals, and as I said, I was just lecturing at Harvard last week, and I was asked about these kind of, well, what kind of sources are saying these things? But, I mean, if anybody thinks that we're going to see a white paper on uh, Russia's nuclear doctrine that explains exactly when they're going to use it and where and how, they're not going to do that. I mean, if they do it, it's going to be extremely shocking and and we'll have very little warning. And I don't think we'll even have hours of warning. You know, we might probably have no warning at all. So, uh, you know, I, I remain extremely concerned about this and no i don't think i don't see any indication or hardly any indication that uh uh the biden administration is is operating cautiously here uh you know occasionally one hears uh, notes of this you know in the reporting by the way around that october statement that biden made about uh, armageddon i noted that uh, i think it was in the new york times it said they it said Biden keeps reminding his advisors that he needs to keep the U.S. out of World War III. And I, I just wonder how it is in our country that, that our um, president needs to remind his advisors of that rather than, uh, you know, I would hope that the advisors would be constantly reminding him because it's their sacred duty to uh, try to protect this country. And uh, I don't see a lot of that. Well, right, and I, I think that gets back to a point that uh, Stephen Wertheim was making uh, a month or two ago, that Americans, especially younger Americans, ha- have no conception of what a, a real global Great Plot conflict would look like, and, and certainly none of us really knows what it would be like uh, in the nuclear age. But but I think a lot of people have become very cavalier about the, the prospect of great power conflict, uh, given the, the enormous risks that it entails, uh, I think because for for several generations of Americans, not, nothing like that has ever even seemed like a possibility, or, or not not a, a realistic possibility. But now we're we're getting back to a world where that is it's that danger is is getting closer. Um, turning from the the main war uh, to, to the, the economic side of the war, uh, there's been a lot of debate about whether uh, Western sanctions on Russia have been working or not. Uh, it seems clear that they've done some economic damage to Russia, but not nearly as much as was promised and not nearly as much as one might have expected. Uh, and, they, and they've obviously failed to change Russian government policies. Um, from what you've seen in in Russian media and, and uh, from what you've been reading, uh, how have sanctions been received by the Russian public and what effect are they having on support for the government and the war? Yes, uh, thanks, Dan. Um, I just want to say quickly... Um, Wertheim's work is superb, and he, I think he made a very profound point uh, that, that uh, you just uh, underlined that, that about this generational problem where, where the younger, I mean, people have become downright cavalier about nuclear threats. Uh, you know, by the way, I noted, I, I believe uh, North Korea tested an ICBM recently and has been hard, you know, hardly even noticed. You know, how, how is that? I mean, it's, I mean, this is a grave uh, threat. 
potentially, you know, if, 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 if this were somehow used in a war. Uh, anyway, I, I think it's almost surreal. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I think um, somehow, um, well, maybe the burden is on uh, this older generation, I guess that includes myself, to to try to uh, impress upon the younger generation that, the, you know, the, we cannot, you know, possibly take these risks that we're taking um, now all the time. Um, uh, but now on the economic question that you raised, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite um, surprising how well um, Russia seems to be uh, holding the line um, from an economic point of view. Although, again, maybe this shouldn't be so shocking. Um, you know, I, I had always flagged the, the issue of um, how currencies kind of distort our understanding of the Russian economy. And, you know, for, for a decade or really even two or three decades, almost like the Russian ruble was so depressed that it made the, you know, any um, outside view of the Russian economy always seem to, uh, you know, in, incredibly understate uh, Russia's uh, economic um uh, power. So, I mean, you know, I think people would say, well, you know, there was this joke among uh, strategists, American strategists who would say, well, Russia's sort of Burkina Faso with nukes or something like that. Uh, Burkina Faso is a relatively poor country in Africa. So, you know, that was always a misstatement. You know, I, 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 I went to Russia, you know, enough times in the uh, 2000s to know that the, the country is significantly wealthier than, than these indices, you know, would have suggested. In fact, my last trip there was in uh, late 2017 to Vladivostok, where I had expected to see not an economic disaster, but at least a, a city that has been, uh, you know, not doing well under sanctions and kind of a rust, rust belt type city in need of investment. But that's not at all what I saw, you know, so rather very dynamic city that is flourishing so you know anyway that was before the war so but look um it is hard to gauge from the outside um it, we're all guessing i think um because you know of course russia and russian media has the incentive to put the best face on things so of course we have to take a lot of what Russians are saying with a grain of salt but to the extent that you know you can read between the lines and see what people are worried about um they seem to have been done quite well at um, stabilizing um, the economy. I think their the head of their central bank uh, has been lauded repeatedly for, um, for rescuing the ruble and so forth. But also, um, you know, in terms of diverting a lot of their trade toward the east, toward China, say, and India, uh, I think that that uh, you know seems to be in, in transition, but yielding uh, some good results. And I, I must say, I don't see. You know, again, hard to tell from the outside, but I, it, I don't see signs of like extraordinary economic hardship. And, you know, keep in mind, for example, one of the areas where hardship would hit the hardest, obviously, would be in food supplies, right? Um, yeah, that would be the first thing that would send people into the streets and, of course, did a uh, hundred years ago in Russia. But um, today, uh, Russia, you know, for the last 20 years, they've invested very heavily in agricultural production. So it seems to be... Uh, you know, quite a, a stable uh, market and, and Russia exports a lot of uh, food. And so, you know, again, doesn't seem to be a major danger of um, kind of a meltdown in different sectors of the Russian economy, from what I can see. I, I don't doubt that China in particular has given a lot of, um, you know, help to stabilize the Russian economy in various ways. Um, 
I think that that is one of the levers that Beijing has been able to pull um, behind the scenes. Yeah, well, and talking about Chinese assistance, uh, we've heard from the Biden administration lately that they're they're concerned that China may be considering or may be preparing to provide lethal aid to Russia, which which they have not done it up until now. Uh, that would be a significant change in the Chinese response to the war. Um, and the Chinese government has, of course, denied the claim. Um, what, what do you make of that claim? How, how plausible do you think it is? Uh, and, and what do you think of their decision to air that accusation publicly? Right. I, you know, I am a little bit skeptical. I think China, from what I can gather, is pretty, um, feels like it's in, you know, after, after kind of a lot of head scratching in Beijing about what to do with this. And I, I, you know, there is a, I do think a faction in Beijing, which is uh, not happy with the status quo. They feel that, that China is too close to Russia and, uh, that this relationship doesn't really serve China well. So I do think that, that, voice exists in Beijing, but they're, they're, I think, quite strongly overpowered by, um, well, by Xi Jinping himself, who, who seems to be quite clearly uh, pro-Russian in disposition for various reasons. Um, but also, the more importantly, the kind of military security apparatus and really the intelligentsia in Beijing, which has a lot of sympathy for uh, or China. I mean, you know, for a long time, China's uh, leading lights in, in the military strategic field have been going to Russian military academies and things like that. So that provides a lot of um, sympathetic um, uh, sympathy in in uh, China. But, um, you know, so I, I don't see I don't really see any uh, sign of major change in China's approach. Um you know, I always said from the very beginning that China, if, if China sees a, a real meltdown happening in Moscow, that they may take um, more extreme measures. And that might include, say, sending a lethal aid. Um, I mean, by the way, I think it's worth saying that that it is, you know, one reason the front has stabilized, I think, is China has not, you know, intervened decisively. Uh, after all, they, you know, it's like, Pointed out recently, they could, they could, if they want to, they could send three airborne divisions, you know, and, and that would have a major impact on the battlefield. Um, you know, almost Korea and Korean War style. Um, I, I did make that analogy, uh, recently in responsible statecraft, but so China, I think has acted with a decent amount of restraint. Look, there, I do think there's probably some pressure to change China's position coming from Moscow, right? I think, um, well, I think, the Kremlin has been leery to sort of beg China for help. They're not going to do that. Uh, they have too much pride um, and maybe too much self-confidence. But, you know, I, I do think they've probably been setting, sending some subtle signals, in, including dangling some nice carrots in front of Beijing, saying maybe you can have this if we can, if you'll come along with us and support the war more robustly. So, um, you know, Rumor has it that Xi Jinping will visit Moscow, um, not confirmed, but um, that would be a major show of support. But one, you know, so so I think it's conceivable, but unlikely that China will take up more robust support. You know, China wants to protect its uh, relationships, uh, particularly with Europe. I mean, you know, we we burned a lot of bridges with the Chinese. And by the way, that's one reason they would consider backing Russia more. But uh, Europe. Uh, you know, Germany in particular, for example, uh, Schultz was in Beijing in November. And, you know, I think that meant a lot to China and China wants to preserve those relationships with Europe. So I don't, you know, I, I'd have to see more evidence to agree that, that, um, 
with what uh, uh, Secretary Blinken said that this would that the Chinese are seriously considering more robust support. All right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time now, but uh, thanks again for coming on. I'm Ronald Goldstein of Defense Priorities. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be here. Keep up the great work. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>